there's a guy who invested $70,000 into this and he's like at valued at over a million, which is cool. So you and I both know, we, we follow Gary Fee. You talked about collecting shoes. You got one of Gary Fee's shoes. That's one of those things you collected back in the early days. And <laughs> he came with his, you know, own IP, his own project called Fee Friends. I feel Diego undersold this episode because before we actually go into Fee Friends, Diego, I think people don't understand that you have invested over a thousand dollars into an NFT. So for, for people that are watching, they're like, guys, wait a minute, where is this going? Why are you so putting so much money into, and also where's the money coming from? I think that's something people want to know as well. Good evening, good night, good morning from wherever you are. Diego just put out the social confos mug just to show you guys uh, where real. the intro originates from. Hey, does the tempo of the intro change when we move in or out? Is, is, is the, the tempo the same or does the tempo of the audio change during the intro? I'm really starting to wonder about that. It's a very peculiar observation. I'm not sure. I've just noticed it one way, maybe because I've been sitting and editing it from the beginning. I really barely notice it anymore. So for those of you who are watching, thank you for joining in. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a fun episode. It's actually going to be a real social convo. And for today, we're allowing a lot of comments. So if you're watching and you feel you want to ask a question, just drop it in the comments because we'll probably discuss it. We're also going to talk a little bit about the lockdown. I want to talk a little bit about things that we have been doing, have been trying out and experimenting with this year. I think that's quite interesting as well for people, not just for the people that are watching it live, but people who want to join in and download the, the recording or watch it on YouTube. I think it's interesting to talk a little bit about the dynamics and the shifting dynamics currently in the in the internet space, to say it that way. So for you, what, what has been like, first of all, we're in a full lockdown. So that's, I think, the first thing that we have to talk about. Thanks, Greg, for uh, pointing out that the audio and uh, video is doing great. Thank you for joining in again. We'll um, get you in here soon, Greg, so keep an eye out. Yeah. Yeah, we, we should get, we should we should do a social a social confos with the host of the other confo shows as well. I think that's a the great idea. We we should probably do that next week. What do you think? Good work, good work. Let's just double yeah. check our schedule because uh, we've been <laughs> double booking a lot lately. But we we've kind of solved that now, so that shouldn't be a problem. But yeah, full lockdown for me, kind of in in my personal opinion, I, I've been barely noticing it. I kind of live more online than offline nowadays. Basically, since I got back, I, I can can count the times I've been out. I've been out just you know for a few social engagement and then just a work project. But most of the time, it's been in the home office doing stuff online, doing conferences online, doing lots of things online. How and do you do your groceries? 
How how do you do your groceries? How do you get bread? That's that's the main question in Suriname now. How do you get your bread? Luckily, I have uh, an awesome brother who drives out a lot. Who, and you know, whenever he goes out uh, to do his work projects, there's always time to get uh, something to eat. So that's how that happens. So I personally don't feel that as much. So that's a uh, convenience for me. Yeah, no, not- I'm lucky as yeah, I'm lucky as well. I have a, a wife who's an essential worker, at least according to the the rules of the government. So that's interesting. But but hey, Anil is joining in. Thank you for joining in, Faka Anil. I actually have an interesting story for Anil uh, later this show. Yeah, I actually had a call with Anil just this e- this afternoon. So I told him to tune in because he was asking some questions and he'll probably throw them at us as we go. Awesome. We also have Rahim. And for those who are not familiar with Rahim, you should definitely check out Rahim's page. And he provided us with some uh, good tips to actually give to to people in Suriname to to earn a little on the side because during this lockdown what what we've noticed is like a lot of companies are struggling there's a promise of economic support system from the government but at the end of the day we should really check opportunities to to create a source of income outside of Suriname especially using digital platforms and and the internet so i think rahim gave us gave us a real look into what the possibilities are and actually something that i want to share with you guys is and and girls watching is we spoke a lot about upwork but here's the interesting thing that i found out last weekend i did or this past weekend i was presenting at the raila at the rotary youth leadership awards and we talked a little bit about financial independence especially starting from a young age I don't know what what was the age that you started focusing on financial independence. Well, what's your take on financial independence? What's what's the definition you got? And I'll base it off of that. Okay, so for me, financial independence means that you don't you aren't independent on others, like mainly your parents, to provide for yourself and be able to to pay your own stuff. And whether or not that's paying rent to somewhere to live or your groceries or your daily payments or your monthly payments, as soon as you're able to be financially independent from from your parents or from somebody else, that's when I consider it financial independence. But I'm not saying when you were financial independent, but when you started thinking started thinking about it. I'd have to say the moment I started doing something for myself, but still, you know, 2013, I graduated from the university ADEC here in 2014, but we already started around 2012, 2013 with some friends, trying some project, trying some different quote unquote entrepreneurial stuff, you know, failing and trying to get something for yourself in income. So I, I guess that's where it started, you know, the train of thought, but where, where I actually brought structure in it, where I actually, you know, went deep, did a deep dive, I'd say was 2016-ish, yeah, I'd say 2016. How, how old were you at the time? All right, so if I, if I had to calculate back, 2016 would be 25, yeah, 25 Yeah. back then. Yeah, um, so that's, that's about the same age as, as I would say. So here's the thing that I think, in, in Suriname, we get like very late in our development, we get financially independent. It's not something that we consider as as teenagers and of course like in the rest of the world like there are countries that are a little behind and countries that start a little earlier but i think like countries where you go out to study 
where when you start studying at the age of 18, you go out and you have to pay your own way. Of course, the Netherlands has like this support system. But when you start having have to make money yourself to be able to go somewhere, become a little bit more independent, I think that that's something we don't do as much. And the reason I got to this is because we were speaking about the presentation and I was thinking of Upwork for teenagers between 14 and 18. And then I found out that Upwork uh, is for 18 plus. And I then found out that Patreon and Fiverr are actually starting from 13 and up. So if you're a teenager, you can actually, yeah, you actually you can actually go on Patreon and you can actually go on Fiverr and start selling off stuff. And that's the interesting thing. I think Fiverr has a lot of leverage now where like in the beginning when people were on Fiverr, you could get stuff for $5. I mean, I got my logo, I think for five or $10. Whereas if you go now on Fiverr, it's like, if you want a professional stuff, it's like $25, $100. It's no longer just the five. I mean, they already have the leverage. So that's quite quite interesting, I think. And yeah, I do feel we, we should look at opportunities to, to earn something in US dollars or in a, a foreign ex, uh, currency or even in crypto for that matter to feel the, the pain a little less. Yeah, Greg brings up a, <laughs> a good point there. If you can live with your parents till you're 30, there's no incentive to be independent. I'd say yes and no. I don't agree, but you go first. Yeah, so it, it, it depends on how you look at it. Also depends on your personal upbringing, you know, personal circumstances. For me, I've been in that uh, position, you know, to... I've had a, let's say, not sheltered upbringing, but there was... We, I didn't really have. It's okay struggle. to say yeah. sheltered. It's, it's okay to say sheltered. <laughs> yeah, sheltered. But I also had the liberty to do what I wanted. And in that free time, you know, I explored many different things. Actually, in my student days, leveraged leveraged my position as a student to get access to things for free. To you know, uh, attend conferences, attend the uh, trainings. So. That's kind of where it started. And that's kind of, you know, you, you're bartering your position for an experience. And as time went on, when you start doing something with yourself, you look at the actual income to, you know, buy stuff, buy your computer equipment. And fortunately for me, then again, my brother stopped working at, at his normal job and he's decided to start a company and, you know, just joined him because I, I'm, I have some technical insights, you know, computer was pretty good with computers. So, and 2013, we started our company, like a print and media business. And that's when you start thinking more on the, you know, financial structure, how you're going to run day to day. So that's baseline level. And why I mentioned 2016 earlier, that's when I started another company with friends and that's where I was more independent because it was me making decisions by myself and that's where you really learn to, you know, negotiate things, things can go wrong. And I actually had mapped out worst case scenarios. And fortunately for me, I did that. So I kind of was able to get that out of situation financially as a, at a break even point. So I, I didn't really okay. suffer a loss. And that's the, about the time I, you know, got interested by other friends. So I also did things with on, you know, crypto and that and that was the trigger to go deep that actually was the trigger okay. to go real deep 
Okay, people want to join in on, on the NFT part. So uh, shout out from uh, Ruiz and also from Marvin. Tefan joins in. He wants to go straight to Fee Friends. We'll go into that in a second. Leroy jumps in as well and says, hey, we're going to talk about NFTs. We're going to talk about NFTs. I just quickly want to jump in to something you just mentioned because I think around the age of 25, that's when I started my first business as well. I actually had two startups at the age of 25 when I came back from studying abroad. And let's talk a little bit about the startup culture here because Neil kind of woke us up a little bit on how the infrastructure is in, in a Silicon Valley where it's like fill, 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 and then one just hits and boom, you, you skyrocket away. For me, I think my first business, we got to the point, after a year, we got to the point that we were at break even. And kind of similar to you, I didn't lose any money, but there was money lost. We had a structure where one person came in with the strategy, one person came in with the money, one person came in with, with, with the operations. And we kind of went our separate ways after a year. The business kind of went off. The, the person who was in the operations continued in that line of business. He actually still works. He has his own company in that business. Still, I just completely left out because I decided to start working full-time for a boss again, which kind of is like a weird move at the age of 25. But my reasoning behind it was that I wanted to learn what it was like to work in like a small, medium enterprise before really starting my own business because mm -hmm. I think there were skills that I had to learn about scaling a business that if I haven't had that experience, like I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now. So that's also a, a thing that I think is not to be underestimated. I think it's a, I wouldn't say it's a negative thing that we in Suriname become aware of, of financial independence at a late age, but yeah, I'm I'm not sure if if do you feel like you were left out? Do you feel like you wasted a couple of years in your 20s not knowing the importance of financial independence and how easy it is to make moves if you have that leverage? I don't think it's too late. I think it's it, it was timing and the conditions of, you know, the environment you're in. So Yes, maybe if, if you look at it from a pure age perspective now, you, or we know people who are much younger than us who are already doing what we're, we, we're doing now, but at a much younger age. And you think, ah, that could have been us back then. What were we doing at 20? But I don't feel left out because the conditions and accessibility wasn't as wide, even though it's not as widely accessible yet, in my opinion, back then. There were many barriers to, you know, get to, for example, the stock market, get to what, what even is a stock market, get the knowledge on that, but also the access. And I think the access part played a very important role. It wasn't until I got my own credit card that actually a lot, a lot of potential. And I started to see a lot of possibilities in my head immediately open up. And that's where it started that, you know, you realize this. For me, my first credit card kind of scared the hell out of me because it was like, oh no, I'm liable for this. I don't want to be liable. But <laughs> I guess for you, it's the other way around. The question that Tevin has for you is, is it a good idea to start a business with a sibling or family? Would you recommend it or not? 
it, it's personal circumstance. You, you gotta decide that for yourself. I, I have a pretty, I'd say, chill, mutual understanding with my brother. Of, of course, there are some some downtimes, and yeah, he he's the one who's more in the field and stuff. So we know who's good at what, and we kind of have a non-verbal way of communicating that. So it, it kind of works out uh, for us. So it's kind of like we're we're still working independently, but together. If that makes sense. Okay. So you you gotta yeah, d- decide that for yourself. But for for me, it kind of worked out. It, it's it's even the same thing with friends. Well, uh, people you, you'd consider friends. So that that's where you got you know tread carefully on if things go wrong. How how do you depart? I I've, I've had projects or startup ideas with uh, friends who I still have a pretty good relationship with and others who just disappeared off the face of the earth. You don't know where they are or something. So it's, it's just about that communication and, you know, how you end it and how, you know, go about the situation. Yeah, I would say, don't, I would say I wouldn't recommend starting a business with friends. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. We, we, we done it. We actually, I experimented with all different kinds of businesses. We actually have a business that has, I think, like... 20 to 40 shareholders. It's like a complete mess. And it's kind of died down silently. Um, we're considering whether or not we should sell the brand because the brand does have value. So we're considering still selling it off. But yeah, and with, if you sell off the brand, you get all the brand benefits and all the social media channels connected to that brand, which do have some value. But again, yeah, if, if you sell off the company, most likely you have to pay all the assets to all the loans that a company still has, the outstanding payments that a company still has. And there's like nothing left after the sale and after everything. So it's, uh, it's, it's, you yeah. brought it up. So my, my view on, you know, loans, taking on debt. Yes, we did take on a, a bank loan for our first company. I'd say there's a certain level of relief once it's paid off. But even then, when I... We, when we were in that position and I started doing other stuff with other people as well, my point of view was I don't want to be in that position of owing something. Like, uh, so I'll take the bootstrapping approach of, you know, using your own savings, using your own resources, what you have at hand and build from that. And there's, there's uh, you know, there's a point of view for, okay, scaling, but then you got to decide for yourself, what's your goal? Do you want to go big like... Uh, 100 employees, 150 employees, or do you want to go small, lean, and uh, and flexible? So I, I chose for the latter. And okay, but, but let's be honest. Certain. Let's let's be honest. Like like from a realistic perspective, because mm-hmm. I know there's some people watching here thinking like, okay, I want to have 200 employees. I want to build this big business. Like in a time span of one generation. I mean, it's gotten easier to go from zero or one employee to 200. But realistically, mm. like how much knowledge, how much resources would you need to have to do that in a time span of 10 years? And then also, what do you have to sacrifice? I feel you, because I, there's a question from Gregory, do I regret being an entrepreneur? So quickly, let's pull that up. I'm, I'm going in a Chinese order. Don't worry, I'm, I'm part Chinese. So do you re- regret being an entrepreneur? You could have stayed at a company or gone to a larger company. Actually, the funny thing is I couldn't have stayed at a company. There was like a, a, a crossing. A crossing of paths and at that point there was kind of decided for me i was kind of agreeing with the decision but on the other hand i wasn't ready for it 
and there were crossroads and I had to go my, my, my own path. And so staying at a company wasn't, wasn't an option. Going to a larger company, I don't like office politics. I really don't love office politics. I can deal with people not being honest, completely honest with me. Just, just tell me straight to my face. I don't like this about you. I can't work with this. And then you have to be fair as well. Like also being open-minded to my feedback. And if you're not open-minded to my feedback, but also you're not being uh, completely transparent with me and, and keeping stuff behind my back and telling stuff to others behind my back, I, I can't deal with that. I'm not that kind of person. So for me to run my own business, that was kind of the only way to go in the end. So looking back, was it worth working for a boss? And would you have learned those skills better or faster if you stayed an entrepreneur? So this is the funny story. I was 25. I owned two businesses. The third one came two years later and I decided to shift from being an entrepreneur to go work full time. I did that for at least five years, I think five years in total. And would I have done it again? A hundred percent. Yes. There's so many skills that I learned during those five years, dealing with different levels within the organization, how to deal with management, how to deal with starting starting employees, how to deal with people coming from the outside, giving advice to the company. These are skills that if I would have stayed an entrepreneur, it really would have been different. And I did become more grounded also because I was very open to learning. So for me, it was five years of a learning experience because I everything that I experienced during those five years, as negative as you could put it or as positive, it was all a learning experience. So from everything that happened, I can recall basically all those moments during those five years, what happened with me. And I couldn't always recall how I got into the situation, but I could always recall what I've learned from that situation. And that's when, when we started with Ineffable, the, the thing that I really did was everything I didn't like about office politics, everything I didn't like about companies, we left it out completely. And I was like, if it's important, we'll, we'll have to implement it. I, I, I kid you not, 80%, 80% of the things that were considered import, important previously, I realized were not important. Like starting, on, starting, the, starting the morning exactly at eight o'clock, and that everybody has to be present at work at eight o'clock. It just really doesn't make any sense because some people want to go to work at seven. Some people want to go to work at nine. Some people want to start at 11. The people starting at 11 have to realize that if you start at 11 o'clock and you go away back home at four, you're not going to reach your own targets. Not just the targets of the company, your own goals in life. If you're not very, very efficient, you're just not going to reach them. So it's, it's fun that you want to decide for that person to start at 8. But if that person wants to start at 11 and work from 11 to actually 9 at night and that person doesn't have like kids or a wife or, or a husband, why not? I mean, but then you have to have your own responsibility. And, and that's where I think most people are like, yeah, but in certain, we're not used to having that kind of independence but also the situation isn't catered towards that. Like if everybody in the organization is working from, from seven to three or from eight to four or from nine to five, of course it's going to backfire if somebody starts working at 11 o'clock. Yeah. But if your organization is fully geared towards everyone having that freedom and the only 
the only rule that we have at our company is if you have a meeting with a client or you have a meeting with a colleague in the morning, you have to be there. You can't say like, okay, I'm starting at 11, but you have a meeting at nine with a client. You, you have that responsibility. So those kind of small things, I think, if I wouldn't have had the experience working for a boss, I wouldn't be able to let go as well of that experience. Because I think the first one and a half years, two years of Ineffable, I was pretty much still like the CEO that would say, but you have to be at the office, mm. but you have to be... And, and somewhere in the third year or second year, it kind of, I let go of it. And then I realized that some people didn't have, weren't used to having that freedom. And it went completely wrong. And others embraced it until we came to the point that everybody embraced it. Yeah, some people just require some structure or guidance, but that's people independent. I think it's also the culture that you've cultivated from the start. Yeah. I've observed company as an outsider, so uh, I can't really say what's going on inside. But to me, it, it pretty much seems pretty, you know, flexible, mobile. I see people sitting in the second floor, some just in the office. So it, it gives a really, you know, modern or feel to it than what I observe in traditional. I've never had that experience, so I, I can't really say. But I, as you said, you deliberately chose to do those five years. I deliberately decided not to go at all. In, in my view, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and benefit for, from not knowing and finding out. Yeah. So I, I lost some of the creative. I have to be honest. There was a time, I think for a year, like for a year, I completely lost myself. I became so KPI driven. I had a zero inbox. I was literally fighting to get to zero inbox. It was like months and months of fighting to get to a zero inbox. It was, it was completely because you completely lose track of what's important and what's not important because you're so fixated on getting to that zero inbox. And if you would go to my inbox right now, I think there are around 30 mails at the moment, so which is very decent. But I have been with all the personal assistant for, I think, now two months because we move kind of as soon as we need one of my, as soon as I have a personal assistant, within the first couple of months, that person already transitions to project manager because there are enough projects open for new project management positions. And I think the benefit of starting off as a PA is that you kind of get through the process of the whole company quicker. So you kind of know what's important, which clients are important. So it's shifting to uh, project management is a lot easier. But now so actually this week we're we're going to put out a, a, a call for, for a new So quick system. question before we pivot to the yeah. NFT side, since uh, everybody's yeah. egging for that. A quick <laughs> question on the personal assistant part. So for you as you know, CEO, as an individual, how much impact has having a personal assistant had for you personally? Oh, a lot. So, so I think people don't understand like why that would be important for, for somebody like me. But if I don't have a personal assistant, I spent about four to eight hours a week on structuring my week. I spent about four to eight hours a week responding to emails and WhatsApps that don't lead anywhere. 
And then I spend another four to eight hours a week on communications and things that could be done by somebody else. Yeah, so between 12, so between 12 and 24 hours a week, I win by having a personal assistant that fully understands how my schedule works, when to plan something into my calendar, when to leave something out, when to check back with me, like, is this something valuable or can somebody else do it? Like, and these are simple things, like things like creating a Zoom meeting for somebody else. So we bought a, a Zoom Pro package like really early during COVID because I realized, okay, we're going to need it. We just uh, bought the Pro version. And kind of like every organization I'm involved with kind of used that Zoom package at some, some way or another in the past year. So if somebody would constantly, and some of them do it on a weekly basis. So we have like four organizations, different organizations currently using our Zoom. Zoom and if I would, for all those people, if they would send me apps, could you make a Zoom link, be present when this meeting starts, hand over the hosting, those kind of small things, mm. they really start adding up. And then I forget, like like three weeks ago, I just forgot that there was a meeting because I'm at home with my kids and the meeting starts at 8 o'clock and I'm busy putting them to bed. And then after 8 o'clock when I put the kids to bed, I have like five missed calls and I realized like, I completely forgot about it. So I think that's one of the things for a PA. The second thing for a PA, what every time I have had a PA during the past five years, our company has made like a fundamental leap because all of a sudden there are like 10 to 20 hours. I have a week more that I don't have to spend processing these small tasks that I got to put into like, okay, I really got to do this. I really mm. want to do this. So I think at a certain point, but I think what people should not underestimate is don't get it too early because I, I wanted a PA at an earlier but point, but you first have to structure yourself and provide that structure to the PA because if you're not providing the structure beforehand, the PA is going to come, he or she is going to try something and you're just going to throw it all away and you're going to throw it out of the window. Yeah, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. And I spent like five cycles of structures finding out like, what is the way? We used almost every project management tool there is. And we ended up with Google Spreadsheets and Google Calendar. Like Google Spreadsheets and Google Calendar are just gold for me. And, and WhatsApp, which is not allowed anymore. We officially use Slack now. But if you want to do something quickly, it's just WhatsApp. So how to be a good PA, Gregory, I think the best PAs are people that are really structured and they can make snapshot decisions whether or something has value or it doesn't have value. It can go wrong. Like <laughs> I had experience that somebody was like, you should fire this PA because I don't like this person. So that, that also happened. All my PA, former peers are going to be like, are they talking about me? But don't worry. <laughs> but 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 that was like like we had a case that somebody was like yeah this person isn't fit for this position but there was also somebody who was very strict like very structured and you do have to have a little bit of leeway you can't be like okay so i'm not available for the rest of june i'm not available yeah if so you go into my calendar yeah if you go into my calendar for this week Practically, if it would be fully filled in, which is not at the moment, but if I would fill in, I do have a task list. I think I have a task list of 50 tasks for this week. And if I would 
schedule all those 50 tasks into my calendar. Everything would be uh, next week. Let's do it next week. Let's do it next week. So from what I get from what you're saying, to sum it up, is basically don't get it too early. Structure your self. You have to first. structure yourself first. Yes. And you know, and and I guess the signaling point would be the moment you start stacking things up or just keep pushing it and pro yeah, not procrastinating, but postponing things, and it just the stack keeps getting bigger, and that's when you should start considering. Okay, it's time to get a PA, but go through that process, whole process yourself first. That's what I'm getting from you. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, do you want to go into more questions? Do you want to jump to NFTs? What what what's the next step for us today? Swick shout out to Rajiv. Bootstrap is life, definitely. Bootstrap is definitely life. Also at home. Yeah. Yeah. I guess let let's take one more question and then we'll we'll pivot to the NFTs because we're halfway through the show now. And let's see. Yes. Yeah. So Rahim uh, mentioned the office politics was the worst. And then Gregory asked, like, uh, how to prevent office politics taking a hold in a company. So basically, if you're like an employee, you don't have full control over that, unfortunately. Like the office politics being prevented starts on the, at the top of the company. So actually, it's funny. Uh, I was on LinkedIn today. I don't go there often enough. But Derek Curry, who many know in Suriname, he posted a, a quote today on LinkedIn saying, like, don't forget that the bottlenecks are always at the top of the bottle. Like it's, it's, it's a funny analogy, but it, it kind of makes sense. So if you have like a, a top-down structure within a company and from the top, it's not being, there's no transparency. There's things hold back. It's kind of a carrots and stick situation where you kind of get hit. Like you get blamed if something goes wrong. I really think I've been in, in like personal development meetings with team members of mine and they were like sitting there and just waiting to be punished. And I would be like, so how is it going? And then for them, it was kind of confusing because mm. they were so used in, in Surinamese culture. We're used to being punished if we did something wrong. So then getting the question like, but are you sure? And it doesn't work. It doesn't always work. We have situations in our company that that the, the gap between what we wanted to achieve for the person and where the person was at that moment was too big. And then you also have to make decisions like, okay, we can try it next year or maybe the year after or come back when you're ready for this. And that's really hard to accept. But the other side, we also had situations where I was like, yeah, but is something wrong? What's going on? Can we help? Can we help in a certain way? And then the person kind of confesses and says like, this is really the issue. And, and the best way to prevent office politics is in weekly meetings. As soon as we feel like somebody feels offended personally, kind of de-escalate it. Saying like, hey, let's, let's focus on the issue. Don't focus on the person. Don't focus on what went wrong. Focus on the issue. What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? And not who made it go, to, who, who was responsible for the fact that it went wrong. But what was the actual situation? apparently people are already digging this but yeah I, I think this is a good place to pivot let's go back to we, we started this talk actually on you know financial independence then starting your own company and then the experience within that but let, let's zoom back to the you know financial independent part and how that path actually brought us to you know our interest personal interest in you know the blockchain cryptocurrency space and what has now you know developed kind of 
gone mainstream, the NFT space. So two, two interesting projects that have been kind of taking off in the last few months uh, is one, the, the one you're so interested in because you're, you're a huge sports <laughs> lover that this NBA top shot. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll pop it in here for a second. This, yeah, oh, NBA nice, top nice. shot. So we got M NBA top shot is basically digital collectible NBA moments, like videos from uh, back in the day from players like LeBron James. No, it's actually, they started, they started with this year, last year yeah. and this year. So these are like all new kind of moments. And I think the best part about this is that it's owned, but it's not, it's owned by Dapper Labs, who has a, a crypto background, which is good. But also it's together with the NBA and the National Players Association. So they're pushing like NBA players to promote this as well, which makes it kind of, you know, for a fact, like you own this NBA moment. Like if you have one of those moments, I don't think people really realize what, what the potential of this is. Because yeah, in the I, end, I think it's the kind first of, question you get is, yeah. what does it mean to own a moment? What, what can I do with that? And how, how would you explain that owning a NBA moment? Well, why did you even, aside from you being a huge sport lover and day lover, what does owning a NBA moment mean for you? Okay, so let's 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 just bring it back first to collectibles. I've been collecting like my whole life. I've NBA collectibles like trading cards. I have flippos and and pick. I used to collect soccer soccer stickers as well. And I I'm actually upset because I think my my best my ten best collectibles like basketball cards from Michael Jordan to Charles Barkley like the high quality ones. I actually uh, used I actually put them on like my wall as a, as a kid. When I was younger, I actually put uh, glue on them and I glued oh. them to my wall. And so they don't have any value. Like my 10 best collectibles actually from my youth, which I'm pretty sure are like at worth between $20 and a couple of hundred dollars. I can't sell them off anymore because they don't have any value. So I think that's the, the biggest mistake that I made. And then, but I still have a very big collection. I think I have over uh, 300 basketball trading cards of which wow. probably 200, 250 are just useless, like our players that I don't even know who they are. But there's a small collection that is actually worth something. And I, if I would trade it off, I would pay for the, the ones that I do have. I, I think there would be like a couple of hundred dollars worth of trading cards there. So where is this upper deck? Because most of them are upper deck cards from the 90s. So where's that little different from these NBA top shots? It's because these are like real, you have these, it's similar in one side, but on the other side, you can watch it on YouTube. If, if the highlight is available on YouTube, you can watch it on YouTube, but then it's owned by YouTube or it's owned by the NBA or the broadcasting station that broadcasted it. But these moments are actually owned by you. And then the question comes, but how valuable are these moments? Like if I have a LeBron James moment and 40,000 other people have it, how valuable is that actually? And that's kind of where we're still in a beta phase because this is year one. And I think people don't realize it. I can actually buy, I've bought in the past month, I've bought a couple of moments for $1 of which I'm pretty sure that there'll be $10 somewhere along the next 10 years. Okay, just for reference from the yeah. moments that are out now, what's the 
most expensive moment just just to paint a picture at, at what stage is now so there's like a lebron james moment of which there are like 49 available in the world and i think also the skill people don't understand the skill we're going to talk about about fee friends as well i don't think people understand the skill because when we think from scarcity from a Suriname's perspective we talk about scarcity and 600,000 people are able to chime in. But when we talk about scarcity, when we consider the whole world, then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> some things are really scarce because some of those moments are expandable, like they keep being produced and minted. But most of these moments, they have a limit. They have a finite amount of, of replicas that are being made. It's like a shoe, basically, like if you're a shoe collector. Yeah. And the, the, the shoes with the with the least replicas, with the, with the set amount, which are the least. And people, don't forget, people lose their shoes, people lose their passwords. So in 20 years' time, if there are 49 LeBron James moments and like 40 of those people don't have access anymore to their collection, there are only nine people who actually have it. And nine people, and there are already over 300,000 Top Shot collectors. So that's also kind of... Com uh, like a confrontation like wait there are 300,000 people trying to get this these 10,000 packs that are feasible so we're thinking 10,000 packs that's a lot and then you realize like the chances of getting one is like it's, <laughs> it's like 3% or something and the LeBron James I think the, the most expensive moment that has been sold on NBA Top Shot went for $250,000 wow that is uh quite a lot and yeah I, that, that's one in how many copies so don't expect to go into it and make 250,000 if you're listening to this no no, no. <laughs> yeah just, just I, I uh, think I have a, to make that clear I have a, there's a guy who invested $70,000 into this and he's like at valued at over a million which is cool it I've is. put in I've put in $350 into this mm -hmm. and my expected ROI at the moment is 15%. Okay. That's, uh, 15%. that's still better reasonable. than a bank. I had to make that joke. But yeah, to, to compare it uh, with scale, the reason I asked that, how many and how valued. So you and I both know, we, we follow Gary Fee. You talked about collecting shoes. You got one of Gary Fee's shoes. That's one of those things you collected back in the early days. And... <laughs> He came with his, you know, own IP, his own project called Fee Friends. So let me pop that up in a second. Can I quickly say, can I quickly, so I feel, and for everybody that's watching right now, I feel Diego undersold this episode because before we actually go into Fee Friends, Diego, I think people don't understand that you have invested over a thousand dollars into an NFT are actually thousands of dollars into NFTs. And I think for people that's, so for, for people that are watching, they're like, guys, wait a minute, where's this going? Why are you so putting so much money into, and also where's the money coming from? I think that's something people wanna know as well. So I don't know how much you can disclose about that, but I mean, to be honest, my okay. top shots, all all my top shots to, to give an intro to, to your, through a segment, all the top shots that I bought, the whole $350 that I invested are actually crypto gains, are gains from cryptocurrencies that I bought in 2018 
that uh, rose in value and I decided to invest it in something else. Yeah, so to answer that, that first part or the second part on where does the money come from? And this comes from the you know financial independence perspective that we talked about earlier. So 2016, you know, started the deep dive and 2016, starting 2017 into crypto. And you got to keep in mind, this are, these are decisions. What's paying off now are based on decisions I made in 2017. So it's like four years later. And I got into crypto space back then. You know, I built miners, people who know me know that, experimented with it. You know, if you always, if you look in retrospect, you could have made way more if you make those decisions, but you don't know that. It's a learning experience. Yeah, that's we all take that. We all take yeah, that. <laughs> that. That's why you try it and experiment with it. And this is, I guess, the next bet I'm making on, you know, experimenting in this space, seeing how things work. And why I decided to go with fee friends in the first place, one, I think the space matured enough and NFTs aren't a 2021 thing. It's been there since the back in the day, 2018 even, but it's only now that they're getting mainstream attention. And if someone like, you know, Gary Fees, who's also been in the crypto space since 2014, 2015, got into Ethereum 2017 as well, looks at this and if you know anything about Gary, from what he, what I've seen online at this, you know, he he's all about owning his own IP. He wants to buy the jets, all about, you know, creating something for himself. And this was his approach, at least from what I'm getting, to get his own kind of Disney type characters, to make that into a social thing that people all over the world can see and associate to. So he combined like animals he loved with the uh, personality traits like a uh, patient panda, shrewd shark into these characters. I think it's over 300 characters, something like that. Yeah. And he created different NFTs on it. And I think 10,255 in total. So to bring this into scale perspective to the end and the top shot. So this initial token, there's like 10,255. 10, Gary Fee has millions of followers. If you check all his socials, millions, they started a discord channel server for this project in particular. How many people are on the discord channel? If I remember correctly, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, when I first went into it, it was over a hundred thousand already. So I expect so there maybe, maybe around 200, a few hundred thousand people in that discord. So this server. is crazy. Yeah. To, to, to put this in perspective, Diego, there are how many 10,000 NFTs? Yeah, 10,000 tokens available, which he he left, kept a few of them for himself. The goose, the Gary originally owned, these are for his giveaways. So subtract this 1,240, that's for him to give away to someone. So available would be uh, 10,000 minus that, around 9,000 something. In a Discord server with hundreds of thousands of people. And so you're in the lucky 10%. It, it, it goes even deeper than that. So I didn't even know what a Dutch auction was until they started a sale. So for those of you who don't know what a Dutch auction is, it's kind of like the traditional auction. You bid something, someone else bids higher and it goes to the highest bidder at the end of the auction time or if no one else bids higher. So the Dutch auctions kind of reverse that. It starts at the highest price and then over time it goes down if nobody buys it. Yeah, it was kind of crazy the first day when, when they launched. They had to postpone it with a week because, you know, technical stuff. So they released 
uh, out of those 10,000, I think it was the, the first batch was around 4,000 first, uh, around 50% of the ones available. And the cheapest ones, the cores, they started at 2.5 Ethereum. And the bottom price was 0.5 Ethereum. So of, of course, the, the characters that were popular that he was pushing through his socials, like the panda and the cat, those got swooped up at 2.5 ETH. But no one knew what was going to happen the first day. So yet some people swooping in, call these the whales, and others were cautious trying to you know, accumulate this Ethereum to get there. And this was at a point that Ethereum was at its all-time high, around $4,000 per Ethereum. Yeah, around. so people pay 10K. Some people pay 10K. For the cheapest yeah. ones. That's 200,000, 200,000 Surinamese dollars for people who are listening in. 200,000 Surinamese dollars for an NFT. Just just put in this perspective. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, before I move on, what these NFTs also do, these 10,255, grants you access to the conference he'll hold the next three years, to 2022, 2023, and 2024. And only people with a NFT get access to it. So at max, theoretically, there can only be 10,255 attendees. Coming back to the course and the first sale, why I decided to go for it, because I was, I, I told you this, I was going to just observe what's going to happen. Yeah. So I've been in that discourse here for the first week it got postponed. I've been following conversations, how people were interacting, how people were planning. And this is where you can see how a community, how a following truly is, and if it's worth your time and investment or not. So people were already planning out, oh, if the PECON's going to be here, did, 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 already thinking out how, you know, we're going there, but also educating each other on, you know, the crypto space. Because a lot of people, a lot of his followers are even new. They, they know nothing on crypto. So they made tutorials on, you know, how to make a MetaMask. So they educated compared to other platforms, the, the whole process. And this was in the Discord only. So he didn't publish it quite, you know, on, on the socials. So it was for this tight-knit group who really invested. And then you have these moderators who kind of took on a, you know, a, a kind of a guiding role in that. So you, you see this happening in the Discord server and then, huh, th th this is getting interesting. And then the first day of sale happens and, you know, obviously the course, the cheaper ones, that, that's the most affordable one for most people. So of course, a, a few people scoop them up, but as the price got lower, you know, 1 ETH, 0.9 ETH, 0.8 ETH, you see a velocity in purchases. People are starting to buy more. And actually the course from day one got sold out the next day, before the opening sale of the next day. Ooh. I was chatting with you. I, I, like, yeah. I, I think I need to pull the trigger now. I was chatting with you. I need, and I, I was looking at it. And it's like the, the numbers are going, you know, there are, I think 200 or 300 left of that. And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do it now. And, I, and yeah. in my mind, you think when the price hits the floor, everyone wants to buy it at floor level. And that's gonna increase the network traffic. And prices were high. And if, if somebody is a bit faster or their transaction gets approved before yours, you miss that out and you have to pay gas yeah. as well and you lose on that. Oh, yeah, you don't oh. get the gas back. I actually paid a bit. You have to, you have to explain. No, no. You have to explain the gas. 
yeah, to so, people who are watching that are not familiar with Ethereum. Because you keep saying ETH, but for the people that know that's don't know that's Ethereum, that's the second largest uh, cryptocurrency in the world at the moment, market cap wise. So, but but explain a little about the gas and then explain your strategy as well. Yeah, so quickly on that. So if I'm not mistaken, NB Top Shot is on another, I think it's called Flow. So it's um, on Flow, but they did something very smart. And I really appreciate them for that. They okay. use Dapper Credit. So you actually purchase Dapper Credit, which you can purchase with any any crypto on Coinbase, not Ripple, because Ripple is being, there's a lawsuit against uh, Ripple yeah, in the okay. US. So basically you have Bitcoin and so on, but then you buy credit. And what they so did, you, you got a fixed, they, like a, a fixed value. You got fixed, you have a fixed value and your money gets deposited back when you miss a sale. Which is good because our internet connection in Suriname is really slow. So I miss out on a lot of $1 and $2 moments because somebody outside uh, Suriname has a quicker internet connection and they get to pull off because it's click, 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 click. So you yeah. click for the sale and you click into Dapper and then you kind of okay, lose Okay, so back, so back to Ethereum. So France is actually on the Ethereum network and Sean already mentioned second biggest network. But... At this point, Ethereum is working on scaling solutions and to process more transactions. That's just kind of one of the bottlenecks with the platform, with the ecosystem right now. And the way transactions work is you got to pay kind of like uh, they call it gas, but a certain amount of Ethereum as an incentive to the miners, the, the machines that keep the network intact, that verify the transactions as an incentive, you, you pay that to verify your transaction on the blockchain. So when traffic is high, gas prices increase because it's kind of like a competition to, you know, whose, whose transactions get approved. And it was an all-time high. So one transaction around that time, kind of like if, if just for ETH was maybe $30. 20 bucks, 30 bucks? Oh, 30, yeah. $30. Okay. But this is a contract. If you're buying an NFT, it's a contract and contracts have separate fees. So. At some point, there's a few hundred dollars at, at the highest point that you'd have to pay as transaction fees to get aside from the, the actual cost of the NFT for a chance to get verified. So if you don't get... So wait, there's, there's also pay. another thing. There's also another thing. The higher the gas fee you pick to pay, the faster the transaction goes, right? Yeah. So there's so a you decide, like, I want to pay more. Okay, okay, go ahead. Just, just share so, there's a visualizer here that kind of, you know, if you're a fan of South Park, where you see these are the transactions. This is the waiting line kind of of all the transaction waiting to get improved. So the people pay higher gas fees, get on the train, basically get on the network. And this is where you can see like the the fees. Now now it's at an all-time low. So this $1.50 was around $40, $50 at its peak. So, yeah. okay, but but so at the end, you, you managed to get... Yeah, so I I risk paying a bit higher for a high or for a higher guarantee to get it with a lower gas price because less transaction at that point. That was the buying strategy. So yeah, I I, I got a fee, fee friend that way, and then you just you know follow the community along and how things go. And the next day, basically, consequently, each day the course sold out that same day or before the next auction started. So the, the course were all sold out within those five days. And that left, you know, prices for 
the more expensive one, kind of more rarity. And aside from those, there are special tokens like gift goats that kind of, aside from the access to the conference, they're going to cater an experience to it that they mail you gifts. And those went for like, I think, uh, five Ethereum at the cheapest. So just, just to give you a brilliance on, like, Gary found the ultimate leverage. Yeah. Like, this is like the ultimate. He basically... Wait, wait, wait. Gained, One more thing. Yeah. Uh, just uh, yeah. another type of tokens for the access tokens where you get either breakfast with him, like mentorship by him for a few hours or, you know, or one time a year. So then there's different modules and those go for like 10 ETH or something like that. So here's the funny thing though. He all, he, he was already doing that. So basically he just gamified his own system. He already had all these things in place. He already knew exactly what value he wanted to provide to people. And he just exchanged the value that he was already giving to his community into NFTs, which is the way it should be done. And this is why people are suspicious and don't trust NFT projects because a lot of NFT projects, and probably there's a, already a video clip of Gary Fee explaining this, what I'm about to say, but in the NFT market, in the F NFT sphere, there's this idea that you could just create NFTs and you can just go to paint and kind of make something and paint and put it on the blockchain and it will sell for hundreds and thousands of dollars which is not how it works. I mean, there's real value in this. Like the successful NFT projects have real value in them. And I think people still underestimate that because it's like, yeah, and we can make an NFT this and NFT that. Yeah, but so it's, it's kind all of about that weight, that added value that's been added yeah. just to just the token kind of sold me on it as well. Like it, it's not a loss. Even if it goes south, even if the everything crashes, which... Probably, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen between wait, wait, now and 2025. <laughs> a few will survive. The good projects, and this is one yeah. that I identified. Yeah. Like, really, this is there is substance in this. So that's why I decided to pull the trigger. And to give the context again, like 10,255 tokens. And if you go back, check the stats. There are only they're, they're sold out, but there are only 4,500 token holders on the market. Oh, yeah. okay. How many are on the market? Of those 10,000, how many are currently being sold? I'd have to check OpenSea. Not that many, because a lot of people are still holding. I, I could probably check that real quick now. So what I've experienced with NB Top Shot, where, Only three, 350 are being sold out of those 10,000. 350? On the secondary market. That's nothing. Only 350. So that's where you see scarcity. So if you, if you look at the course, the bottom price was 0.5. Ethereum. The cheapest yeah. one from what's being sold now, it's 2.5. It's 5x already. Okay, so, but, but realistically, we're both not in it. We both looked at the project and we're like, this is something that I want to invest in. This is something that's fun. This is something I find value in. It's not something we did for the money. I'm going to give also, a good example. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is also a thing that there were actually people flipping. There are have been actually people who bought course at 0.5, flipped it on the secondary market for a few ETH because, you know, Gary calls out, oh, this is an underrated character. They put it on the market and then someone else scoops it up. So some people went from a core to a gift goat. So they, they upgraded their token just by reselling and buying another one. 
Right. So that, that's also right. a way to go. Yeah. And, and that was part of his strategy to give people access. And that's why he did a Dutch auction. So, you know, whales are kind of disincentivized and other people get a chance to flip and gain some financial gain with it, aside from just the token for those who can. Well, the, the whale that is patient, the whale that is patient also got his. Yeah. Own. But was there a limit to the amount of fee French you can have for one account? Or how did they... I, I don't think there was. I'm, I'm not sure if that was intentional or maybe something, a limitation in the, you know, uh, the tech. But even then, there's ways around it. You can make multiple accounts and purchase multiples. Yeah. So I think that's, that's before we go to Anil's question, it's a really interesting yeah. one. I think NBA Top Shot did a couple of things right and they did a couple of things wrong. One of the things that they did wrong was the challenges. And they overestimated. I think the market kind of crashed recently. And that's why I'm actually pulling people into it now. Because when a market crashes, that's when you want to put people in. You, you don't want to get people in when it's at an all-time high. You want to get people in when it's at an all-time low. Because then you know they're going to get value from it. Yeah. So I think what what's the thing that they didn't do right for NBA Top Shot is they kind of, the, the rewards for certain challenges, they, they just weren't valuable enough. And and that kind of backfired and certain packs also backfired. But in all the experiences, it's like, it's, it's, it's so well thought out the way they release. Right now, they're just releasing packs only for people don't, that don't have a pack yet. Like to make sure that everybody yeah. has equal opportunity. And also they've they made eligibility rules that you cannot purchase more than one pack per person. And they go through all those different accounts to make sure that nobody has a duplicate account. And Mark Cuban actually made a mistake of saying that he had two accounts. So that, that kind of, the community was like, wait a minute, that's, that's not allowed. But owners are in it as well. Players are in it as well. So let's quickly gonna go to the, the question of Anil. So, okay, interesting. What happens if Gary Fee dies? I cannot predict what's gonna happen. But, you know, you go into this assuming that that's not going to happen. But were it to happen, the, the keys, of course, are in his, you know, at least the ones he owns, he has it. And I don't know how it works in the back end. There's probably contracts and conditions being met in the back end team. I say if he were to die, the access tokens kind of, you know, you, you, can, you can't really get that service or... Oh, you can. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I do think you can get Gary. it. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you I, probably I, could have something alternative, but you know that that's worked out in in the project itself. You, you kind kind of gotta look at it as just any type, other type of reward based conference. If if you uh, scheduled a meeting with a coach or something, if, if the coach dies, or or, or, or a trainer, I, I I assume they would have mechanics around that for uh, something at this scale. It's interesting. I wonder if he addressed that already on one of his channels. It would be interesting because I do feel Gary would be somebody who already put something in place or yeah. has ideas on. on I can probably throw it in the Discord later. What if? Yeah, and I think there, and we have to understand it's a community over uh, hundreds of thousands of people who would, I mean, they would pay to go to his funeral. So you know, there there's so many things that. To talk about community and funeral, I, I'm gonna maybe take a side track here on you know the gaming world. For example, I'm also an avid gamer for the people who know me. Uh, I play online MMOs. And 
you know you have a strong community and this is just a, a gaming world. There was actually a popular manga artist who recently passed away, a popular show in Japan, for sure. And when, when the news hit the internet, there were a lot of fans of him in, in the game I'm playing. And they actually held a kind of uh, a funeral or tribute of respect. Yeah, kind of everybody lined up with their swords in the ground with a fire just to show respect in in one of those cities. And it did go just goes around, and that's thousands, a few thousands of players just for a few days straight. So you can see the power of community there. And if you translate this to a real world example of you know someone who's been impacting people's lives through his socials a lot yeah you, you can expect something like that from the community side so if we talk about community we do have to quickly talk about doge as well i i think yeah i think it's interesting doge is a very interesting and a very peculiar place i i i don't have a good idea how many people in the doge community are there because of they're just thinking moon 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 and how much of the community is still like the the community who's been there the core the development community yeah is that what you mean yeah yeah because i know there's there's part of the community that's saying like we're not going we don't sell below five cents we're not ever gonna go below five cents again so i think that's a really interesting dynamic because there's a lot of speculation whether or not we're still in a in a, in a bull run or we're already moving towards the bear market there's a lot of speculation about that but also these these cryptocurrencies are gonna drop eventually they're they're gonna drop we don't know when they're gonna drop they might go up a little and then have a drop or they could be stagnant now and drop off later this year or next year but it will be interesting to see like what's the bottom doge is gonna go back to i don't know yeah so a lot of people are saying like five cents there are people who are like yeah but i'm not buying doge for more than one cent there are people who are like yeah it's gonna go back to a, a fifth of a set of a fifth of a cent so there's kind of but the community is what makes it special and that's why kind of elon is is putting so much effort into tweeting about the community because from a community perspective they're really really strong i feel yeah i i really can't say much on doge because even though i've been looking at it from a sideline and the price spiking up i personally haven't you know dived into it because kind of, you know, missed it and you don't pay it, no mind. Just focus on other projects like uh, the NFTs. So he, he, here's what I want to say about that. 2017, took the deep dive on crypto, you know, the, we talked about financial independence. And to understand something really, you got to live it, you got to engage with it. It's not something you just see, oh, and you hop on the train and then go with it. Because that's not where you're gonna see the value. It's it's the moment you start engaging, actually engaging with it, with the people busy in that space, and you know try to do a transaction. This was actually my first NFT transaction. I I, I had a few okay. NFTs, but like purchase for a piece for a token on the on the Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah, yeah, of, of this type of token. I got my ENS domain before that a few months ago as well, but uh, that, that, that's also uh, uh, findable on OpenSea, but yeah. So this is kind of moment, I don't say start with, you know, fee friends, but if you're really interested in this space and see what the potential is, 
just check out other projects. There's the cyberpunk, the cyberpunks projects with icons. There's different types of projects, but get your hands dirty. Just try it. Doesn't have to be Ethereum. Can be yeah. any other place, but just actually try it. Spend that little amount of money just to get that experience, and then decide later. Okay, this has value or not, and then base your investment, if you want to call it that, on that, and not just go on the Doge train. Oh, it's going up. I need to buy Doge. Yeah, but that's that's how most people start, you know. Yeah, because Doge is relatively cheap, but forty cents. 70 cents, even 10 cents is not cheap. So Devin wants to know where you can mine nowadays. Can you still mine? So how, how, how do you feel? How do you feel about faucets, mining, and also what's the last one? Tier, uh, airdrops. You get how do you feel about it? How do you feel about faucets, airdrops, and, and mining? Okay, to start with faucets, I, I've never done faucets. Yeah, and to, to explain what faucet is, it's basically you have these websites and you do a, little, a few actions and you get rewarded for it. I think you did it a while, yeah. but I, I've never even bought I, it. I actually, I think my faucets in the beginning, when I started doing it in 2018, I was at a certain point, I was like, okay, I've been doing this for months and I got like $5. But in the end, like when the prices spiked, uh, I got at least $100 out of just clicking literally just clicking websites there's yeah. still a couple of faucets up but now yeah now you you don't get any reference yeah so for at, at that scale I, yeah. I i didn't really bother with that it's too meticulous for mm -hmm. me mining i mentioned before i tried that uh, again it was getting your hands dirty and experimenting with it with the tech and what's possible that's where you you know appreciate what's what's going to happen so i did that the reason why i stopped is you know, you, you take a big picture perspective. I was running NVIDIA cards, uh, graphics cards, and, you know, graphics cards are expensive. And if you look at a tech cycle, there's, you know, newer cards every few years. And at that time, I was looking at the release cycle of NVIDIA. So the next year, they were going to come with a new card, like the 2080 something. So new cards, new chips means better processing power is going to outperform your card. So I got out sold my card before that happened or, or around the release time. That was just a tactical decision on that part, big picture. And I didn't go back into it because, you know, I've, I've done my time. I got the experience. Okay, this is how it works. This is this. And, and, I was and be honest, you, 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 uh, you ended up with quite some Ethereum. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of uh, paid for one of my trips to Europe to, to, to a conference, basically. So that, that, that's kind of the, the, the mindset there on mining. I'd say, yes, you can still mine. And here's another mind shift change you have. You mentioned, you know, Doge, people not going to buy under five cents or so many cents. Sell, selling, you, selling, not selling. Or, or, under se five or selling or buying, yeah. yeah. But that's still thinking in US dollar terms. I early on stopped thinking in US dollar terms. I look at my portfolio in either Ethereum or Bitcoin terms. I establish if I've grown, if the coin amount has grown, not the US dollar amount. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the fundamental differences if you, in a way I look at it compared to most people, I think. I've lost, so, if, if I look at that, I've really lost because I did, I did. Yeah, and, and I probably own, lost too. I did but, own uh, more, I did own more than one Ethereum once. 
yeah so yeah. I, I probably yeah. lost two yeah. over the years but that's you know you you experiment there was a phase where i experimented with trading and that's yeah. how you get that experience as well and you start understanding market psychology you start understanding again communities why people buy why not and that's how you look at that and airdrops I, I missed airdrops, good old I, ICO days. I, I got a few airdrops, but not a lot, but in 2020, there was a huge one. This was when I was in New Zealand and I wasn't really focusing on the market. I saw the news come through that, you know, Uniswap on chain exchanges. Oh, that was Uniswap. a huge airdrop. Yeah. And I Uniswap totally slept airdrop. on that. Oh. I, I totally slept on that. But and then a lot of other platforms tried to copy that effect to a certain degree, but I think it kind of died down now. So it's just yeah. kind of a, an incentive now to get people on the newer projects. And I don't really pay the newer projects so much mind yet. I, I focus on what I've experienced in 2017 that kind of has laid a track record of, you know, this is, has an established community. It has an established set of developers who are really working on the product itself. Yeah, so I think that's that's you made a uh, good comment there. No, I, I <laughs> it's it's very painful to, to to think of it like that. Oh, I, I see a question here. If you're, if you're yeah. talking about gaming, on have you checked in the games running on earning your crypto? So this is really interesting for me. I I am very much bullish on that. I am waiting for the moment when triple A games, online games, start implementing these kind of things. And that's why I'm really not investment advice, but I'm really bullish on engine engine is, it also runs on the Ethereum network, but with a different protocol, combining the fungibility of normal tokens that you can exchange like Ethereum and Bitcoin with NFTs, with non-fungible okay. tokens. So if you translate okay. this in game language, you, you have this currency in the game and you can buy this piece of armor it's, or it's... glamour. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, this is my mandatory, here's where my mandatory Hive talk comes in. I think we have one more screenshot of, of Hive. I mean, in D-City right now, people are really upset. Like D-City is a really good game. If you're into SimCity, it's, it's really worth checking out D-City. It's dcity.io. And that's on the, on the right. So on the left, you have my Top Shot collection, or at least a couple of cool cats and some fantasy stuff. This was a slide in one of my presentations as well recently. But on the right, you see D-City. And I think what's what's really interesting about D-City is basically it's SimCity, a little bit more two-dimensional SimCity. You really see what the city looks like. But as you can see, the city is quite big. I think my city right now on D-City has over 7,000, a population of 7,000. My peak value at the moment, if, if I would get all my revenue from my city, I would make about $2 a day. But currently, and this is why D-City is a lot like a regular life, is because at the moment for D-City, we pay 100% taxes. So the complete revenue that I would earn as a city goes directly to the government, but to the game, it gets burned. And this is to actually, it's a, a tactic that our current president is doing to get the price the of game, yeah. the, 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 president the price of the game. Yeah, the president of the game. Every every two weeks we vote for a new president. So all 2,000 players that are playing, we get to vote for a president. And then there's also something like holding rewards which is the amount of same sim power. This, so sim is the simulation token for, for D-City. And the amount of sim that you have stocked up, that decides how much voting power you actually have. 
But this game, especially with the third edition that rolled out, it's next level. It goes into politics. You really have to focus on learning how politics works. But it also has the dimension of the pandemics, fires, riots. You also have cards that are focused mainly on education. You have cards that are focused mainly on creativity. You have cards that are focused on, on crime. So there's so many dimensions to this game. And the question is, have you checked out games running on uh, crypto? This is a management game on crypto. It runs on a crypto ecosystem. So that makes it really, really cool because there are also some side tokens that I earned from playing this game like beer and, and wheat, wheat token. And I actually earned from it as well. But why I want to talk about why I want to talk about Hive is D City isn't even the biggest game on Hive. D City has around two thousand players at the moment, but I think uh, Splinterlands Splinterlands has over ten thousand players. And uh, Splinterlands, you also have Crypto Brewmaster. Uh, Splinterlands is like a monster gaming trading card. It's like you can compare it, compare it to how what's it called uh, Pikachu is part of what game? Pokemon. So you have kind of like Splinterlands is like NFT, Pokemon NFTs, like monster game. You can uh, trade and fight against each other. And then you have Crypto Brewmaster. Crypto Brewmaster is kind of like this beer brewing game. And then you also have Rabona. Rabona is like, which is really weird. I should be playing Rabona. I don't know why I don't play it, but it's uh, this uh, football game, uh, soccer game on the blockchain. So these are so many levels to... And these are all different NFTs. So when you're saying like, this was the first NFT that I bought, like, I'm like, yeah, I have over a thousand NFTs, but they're like small cards. The most expensive NFT that I sold was kind of an automation that you could get on DCD and I sold it for like 30 bucks at the time. And I actually sold it twice and I reinvested nice. it all in the game. Well, one so, that I do want to mention or add to that list is if you're into virtual world stuff, check out yeah. Decentraland. Decentraland, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, if you're into Minecraft, like open box, sandbox building stuff, there's people building cities, literally lands, plots of lands are being sold like in SimCity and these are being traded on OpenSea as well. OpenSea is yeah. a platform where people on the secondary market exchange things. A few of them go for a lot. So if, if you're into that virtual space, just try and give this a shot and see how that works for you yeah so it's different kind of games of course certain games just just don't work yet i think with brave like people are getting more aware of brave as well so with brave you're already having the browser kind of revelation that people are like wait a minute instead of google making money off of us we can actually make money while browsing so that's already like a very interesting kind of new age incentive but for like Quick actual kid. real first shooter gaming, I think that's that's a little bit still far away. No, there's actually development on RPG style dungeon crawler yeah. games, yeah, with the NFTs. Oh, I, awesome. I saw some demos on a few YouTube videos. They're actually in development already. People experimenting with that. So with, you know, fancy graphics, high-end stuff, 3D models and everything. That would be cool if you could play like Bioshock and get like, you earn like crypto from playing Bioshock or something like that. Yeah, and to translate that into games, to bring bring it back to a bigger perspective, look at how esports has grown. Let's look at the uh, the scale of esports now. Translate that to esports, and esports rivals like traditional sports, like 
I, I don't like FIFA yet, but you know, international sports. There are competitions on, you know, hey, those mobile listen, we we spoke with Renzo last week, and like there are esports people that earn more money than Olympic swimmers. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of ridiculous, you know. So it's it's like we're getting into this dimension. There's actually a question that we asked Rishi, who is like one of the pros playing from Suriname, FIFA pros playing from Suriname. Like to like to what extent is it like fair that you kind of you earn a living from like playing FIFA like on a console and there are people like play, playing semi-professional soccer who are like they're not earning anything it's like this weird weird second layer dimension that we're not and then and then it gets to the point actually of how much time and how much resources and how much skill do we invest into something because I think that's we should put a disclaimer to this mm. like the amount of hours that you've put in to that Gary Fee Discord server. It's, it's yes. you to, to invested that in, in that as well. To bring that into perspective, the, the project was supposed to launch May 5th. So at the beginning of May, I joined the Discord server and I've been checking the server at least a few times a day, following what's going on and how things go. So it's research that you're doing and trying to understand. So that, that all goes into that all went into me making the decision that day. Like, I think this is a good move to make for me. I think, uh, I think, I think that's a good disclaimer to close it off with. Like, all these things that we're talking about, the amount of hours that we spent, and yeah, I can say I don't have time, but the amount of hours I spent into MBA Top Shot, like understanding what's going on, learning, making mistakes. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes that I, I could have avoided them, but there are also you also get rewarded like and that's the funny thing about it like when you invest a lot of time into something eventually get lucky at some point and realize the luck because of the hours you've spent into mm. it that you wouldn't realize if you just spend a couple of hours just quickly researching it you you just don't get those opportunities when you just are like yeah i'm gonna put myself into make account and then you're done with it the, the actual result and then we've gone full circle because I ended up in social media by accident. I studied leisure studies. I studied sports and tourism. I mastered in urban development and planning. It's also, of course, I mean, my, 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 social, my social science background, of course, helps a lot. So, hey, yeah, so Anil is on to something. When you have a PA, you can't spend time for, for in becoming financial independence. That's true. That's definitely true. I, I wouldn't, I don't hold any against, thing against that. But for me personally, the amount of time that I've put in to certain topics, to, to learn certain things and to put it full circle. When I first got into social media, I've, my first, one of my first projects for social media was figuring out whether or not Tourism companies should invest in social media. We're talking here 2009, 2010, mm -hmm. I think 2000, the end of 2010. And we were, I did a research on figuring out whether or not making a social media and like a Facebook, at the time it was still Flickr. I think we did a Flickr account for photos, a YouTube account and a Facebook account. And what we wanted to do is like figure out whether or not actually having a Facebook account would help generate traffic or sales for this tourism for these tourism companies and 
And of course, what you end up finding out is if you have like a, a page and you don't do anything on it, Nothing there's no happen. value. So, like, any, nothing we said here is financial advice. Unless you put in the work, the hours, and the time to figure out and research for yourself what works for you and what you believe in. I mean, Diego invested in Free Friends because he believed in the ecosystem. I invested in DCD and NBA Top Shot because these are actually fun things to do. I mean, yeah, collecting I know, NBA Top Shots. Yeah, I actually know yeah. nothing about NBA Top Shot from that perspective. And yeah. I'm not that interested in the sport, so I, I didn't even bother yeah. with it. Yeah, so it's not like, yeah, you should invest in this because it's going to be. No, it's because you love. I mean, like, I, for instance, we, we just put out a screenshot. NBA Top Shot gave me a Stephen Curry, like uh, a, a Stephen Curry Top Shot for a milestone he achieved. He broke the record for most points for his franchise. And that that franchise moment, that layup where he broke the record for most points in the Warriors franchise, I own one of the 17,000 limited editions of that one. And of course, I don't own the number one, which is the most valuable. But in the end, when there are like 50,000 people who want in on that moment, and I'm one of the 17,000 that owns it, I want to keep it. I actually don't want to sell it. So that's also something that you're getting confronted with. Like a lot of times it's like you made this investment at a certain point, you're going to have to sell some of these things off because otherwise you'll be like, it's, it's a consumer investment. And that's, that's my takeaway as well. Like this city, I consider it as the following. When I was, I don't know, a teenager and I wanted to buy a Sim city. My dad would have to pay the, uh, the the store for me to get that game, and then I would be playing that game, and I was wasting my time playing that game that I purchased. And now, where crypto gaming is heading, that you don't purchase the game, you purchase in in-game purchases, and actually you're getting paid back a certain amount from those in-game purchases. So if you're lucky. Best case scenario is that you actually earn more from the game than you've invested in it. And your worst case scenario is that you bought a game and you play the game. So it's kind of, for me, it's like, it's a win-win. Awesome. I think that's a good place to leave it off. Uh, my camera died for some reason. So uh, <laughs> with that being said, this has been got, this has gone longer than uh, we expected. We intended. We, yeah. we, we intended. We kind of expected this to happen. For some reason, when it's just the two of us, we go way over the side because there's no, you know, limiting factor for us to, you know, keep it someone else's time that we have to, you know, take into consideration. But yeah, I, I think this was a pretty fun tea time. And thanks everyone people, for tuning in. As you all know, we will be posting the full episode on the website this weekend, or Diego will be posting the full episode this weekend. You will be also be able to listen and view this back on different streaming platforms, your favorite streaming platforms. And I guess we can say see you guys next week with the hosts of the other Convo series, Tevin and Gregory. It's official now. They can't back down anymore. So see you guys next week's Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Have a great time. Bye-bye.